Thank you for listening to Whatever, I'll Watch It, a podcast bringing queer of color critique to movies and TV. Each episode, me and a guest will talk gender, race, sexuality, and all things representation, because TV podcasts are way too fucking white. I'm your host, Alexia, and this is a mini bonus episode on the 2009 film Jennifer's Body. For those of you who don't know already, I am an enormous nerd for Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, I spend quite a lot of time on Buffy forums and listening to Buffy analysis podcasts. And Jennifer's Body is a film that comes up a lot in Buffy fandoms because of the camp, the queer and feminist themes, and the mix of comedy and horror. I'd been interested in seeing this movie for a while now and finally made the plunge when some queer and trans people of color I recently met with recommended it to me. So, some context for those of you who may not know, although the movie flopped when it was originally released in 2009, it has since gained a cult following of people who insist it was just ahead of its time and poorly marketed. Rather than leaning into the queer woman-centered camp that it is, the film was sold as a sexy, bloody romp with Megan Fox parading in skimpy outfits and partaking in some hot, hot, hot girl-on-girl action. So, predictably, when hetero men sat down and watched Jennifer tearing boys from limb to limb and Needy subtly pining over her friend, they were like, what the fuck is this movie? And it got terrible reviews. It has since been rediscovered by queer and feminist movie nerds, and there's dozens of articles saying we owe the film an apology, that it is far more profound than it was recognized to be at the time. So let me say first that I do appreciate the irony of the male gaze in this film. It is literally called Jennifer's Body, and we see plenty of shots typical of the horror genre in which the busty white girl gets naked to skinny dip, to seduce a guy, to have sex, always before being murdered. Except this time, Jennifer isn't the victim, but the villain. In this movie, the male gaze is deadly, not for the women who are objectified, but for the men who are doing the objectifying. Some film critics have argued that the movie subverts the horror genre's condemnation of teenage female sexuality. So often in horror, we see openly sexual women being targeted, ostensibly a punishment for being sexual. It sends teenage girls the message, you need to remain pure in order to remain safe. But in this case, the fact that Jennifer is not a virgin is actually what gives her power. Rather than dying when she is sacrificed, she takes on some of the abilities of the demon. So, the film is upheld as a feminist revenge tale, because Jennifer is ritually sacrificed by a misogynistic indie band seeking fame and fortune. She not only survives, but gains special abilities from that experience, and she in turn uses that ability to disembowel and eat men. A lot of women see that and go, oh my god, smash the patriarchy. But here's where I deviate from typical feminist readings. Jennifer doesn't prey on her abusers, even when they are back in town. Instead, she targets teenage boys at her school who are only shown in emotionally vulnerable positions. The first boy she eats is a South Asian foreign exchange student. We know absolutely nothing about him except that the white students see him as other and make racist jokes and microaggressions behind his back. When Jennifer attacks him, he has just survived a horrific fire, which is completely wild because we literally see a fiery beam fall on his head and crush him. But whatever, he survives, and now he's all alone and nobody knows that he is still there. Far from being a threat to Jennifer or woman at large, he's a brown kid, likely a member of a stigmatized religion, with English as a second language, and a remote, white, small town where he doesn't have any biological family or even people who look like him. And when Jennifer attacks him, we're supposed to say, yay, feminism? 
Her second victim is a big, strong, white football player, the kind of character we would expect to be a misogynistic jerk or bully in most 90s and early 2000s films. But our introduction to this character is him openly crying in class after his friend dies in the fire. He's not afraid to be emotionally vulnerable, which is one of the classic traits of toxic masculinity. When Jennifer approaches and seduces him, it's very likely that she was only successful because she insists it was what his friend would have wanted. He's not mindlessly horny. He's a person who is grieving and looking for comfort in someone who is also close to the person he is missing. When Jennifer attacks him and he wails out as he is dying, the teacher overhears and assumes he is letting out his grief. Again, yay feminism? The third victim is a gothy emo boy who is friends with Needy. Needy tells us he is very kind and a talented poet. He is made fun of by Jennifer for being too feminine. She makes some gross joke about his dick because his gender presentation is non-conforming. He wears makeup and he eschews a lot of the typical markers of masculinity. While there is certainly a lot of misogyny within emo scenes, emo bands like Brand New literally saying about wanting their exes to die in horrific plane and car crashes because they kissed another boy. And Jennifer herself is attacked by an indie band wearing eyeliner and tight jeans. But we don't see any of that hatred for women reflected in the character Jennifer attacks. The one critique I might allow for is that he clearly has nothing in common with Jennifer, so asking her out is because she's hot. Her body is once again an object of desire divorced from her actual personhood. But I'm not even convinced of this reading because I think it is more likely that Jennifer was working to seduce him previous to this scene, or that part of her demonic abilities is to put men under her thrall. Either way, exacting revenge against the gender non-conforming emo poet is not the ultimate win for feminism. And the emo boy seems very uncomfortable and unsure when Jennifer makes sexual advances on him. And then her last victim is Needy's boyfriend, Chip. I don't want to defend him extensively because honestly, his character was so boring and Needy deserved so much better than that sex. But being a teenage boy who doesn't know how to give his partner pleasure isn't a reason to die. And he's reasonably kind and humble throughout the film. The only reason Jennifer is able to kiss him is because she lies and tells him Needy cheated. He's feeling emotionally vulnerable and in need of comfort when he gives in to the kiss. And he does stop himself before going any further because he recognizes it isn't right. So y'all should see where I'm going with this by now. I don't think it's feminism when individual women have power over individual men, especially when those men are emotionally vulnerable, artistic, caring, and gender nonconforming, and the woman in question is arrogant, self-centered, shallow, manipulative, and has a lot of social power. Too often people want to apply broad structural analyses of power to interpersonal relationships, and it just isn't as easy as men bad, women good. Patriarchy is a harmful system of domination that specifically targets women, but it's also harmful for men, and especially for non-binary and gender non-conforming people. Switching who is at the top of the hierarchy only reinforces the hierarchy. While some white feminists just want to gain a spot at the top with other white men, the feminism of many black and brown women and queer and trans people works to dismantle the hierarchy altogether. If Jennifer had specifically targeted her abusers or stood up for other women by intervening in their assaults, I could more readily claim this as a feminist film. But I think it's more accurate to say it's a film with strong female characters, a film that allows women to be complex and lustful and villainous. While that is feminist representation, it's not the type of nuanced intersectional feminism that I want to see in my movies, especially when we think about race. So I read quite a few reviews before deciding to watch Jennifer's Body, and they all uplifted the queer and feminist themes while saying absolutely nothing about the pervasive racism in the film. 
So one of the opening shots of the movie is Needy, who is incarcerated after killing Jennifer, kicking a black woman prison guard so hard in the chest that she vomits blood. This is fucked up for so many reasons. First of all, the black cop or black authority figure is a film and television trope where black characters are placed in positions of power, like cops, judges, principals, doctors, and surgeons. It overstates the power that black people actually have in U.S. society, while also working to silently endorse these institutions that are at their core anti-black. Representation shapes collective perception, and uncritical viewers may wonder how policing, medicine, and education can be anti-black when there are so many black people in positions of power, at least on their television screens. Second, this is the only black woman and only woman of color character in the entire film, and her one action is to be brutally attacked by a white woman who is also the protagonist. This is another dynamic to look out for and something I noticed repeatedly happening in Broad City. In that show, black women are always cast in roles where they were on the receiving end of the protagonist's wild antics, which meant they were usually disrespected and treated like shit. These representations say a lot about widespread devaluation and normalization of violence against black women. In the prison scene, we also see a Latinx guard give needy food, to which he responds, grassy ass, Raimundo. Linguistic anthropologist Jane Hill wrote a really seminal piece back in the 90s about how practices of mock Spanish, mostly used by middle to upper class white Americans, is a form of linguistic racism. When whites use mock Spanish, they are trying to summon a perception of themselves as being carefree, easygoing, and humorous. But that association only functions if Spanish speakers themselves are regarded to be carefree and easygoing, i.e. lazy and non-precise. Mock Spanish also gestures to the tendency of white Americans to appropriate black and brown people's cultural traditions without regard for the origin and its meanings. It is racist and violent at worst, and ignorant and disrespectful at the best. I believe the third and final brown person we see in the film is the South Asian foreign exchange student who Jennifer eats. So maybe 20 minutes into the movie, we've already come into contact with all of the people of color in the film, and every single one of them is mocked, disrespected, physically attacked, or murdered. The film is also filled with many more racist microaggressions and a ridiculous amount of ableist slurs that I'm not going to repeat or get into. I'm someone who really loves 90s and early 2000s films, but this is a dynamic that pops up all the time, and it makes watching these movies really difficult. Juno, which was also written by Diablo Cody, was known for its cutesy and wholesome language and humor, but when I rewatched it a few years ago, I was horrified at how much ableism, homophobia, fatphobia, and other plain fucked up shit was in the film. But let's get back to Jennifer's body and talk about the queerness. So Needy is 500% bi, in love with Jennifer, would much rather be fucking her than Chip. I think it's very likely that Jennifer shares some attraction and love for Needy as well, and if we take her I-go-both-ways statement at face value, then she is bi too. I am a firm believer and proponent in bi for bi, but this was a toxic relationship even before Jennifer got possessed. In the beginning of the film, Jennifer is shown to be controlling, pokes at Needy's insecurities, and is even physically violent with her a couple of times. When they finally kiss after Jennifer murders the emo boy, it isn't clear if Jennifer is actually desiring Needy or just trying to manipulate her. I get why people are excited about bi-for-bi representation, but we shouldn't let our lack of representation distract us from critiquing abusive and toxic bi-for-bi relationships when we see them. I don't want to watch Needy be in a vanilla, unfulfilling relationship with Chip, but I don't want to see her bossed around, criticized, and devalued by Jennifer either. 
Queer relationships are just as susceptible to toxic dynamics and abuse as hetero ones, and the fact that these are two femme cis women doesn't make the power dynamics okay. Camp in and of itself is very queer, and the film is full of it. I think my favorite scene was Needy in her puffy, billowing pink dress running through the forest to save Chip. That dress made absolutely no sense for the year or for the character, but it was 100% pure queer femme camp, and I loved it for that reason. I think it was also maybe trying to play on the idea of a princess dress, but in this scene, again, it's subverted where Needy is the one rushing to save Chip. I also think the film did an excellent job capturing the quiet misogyny of Low Shoulder, the indie band that sacrifices virgins to further their career. I think so many women have been assaulted, abused, and coerced by shitty men in indie bands, and this film really validates that experience while also showing how infuriating it is to watch these men avoid all accountability while being simultaneously praised and celebrated by everyone around them. The fact that they were joking around, singing, and laughing before they plunged the knife into Jennifer's body is as disturbing as it is perfect, because I personally, and I'm sure many others, have seen that nonchalance and levity from rapists and abusers. I hate to end on such a heavy note, but hey, this is a horror film about the consequences of misogynistic violence on survivors and on witnesses to that violence. But in closing, let me just say I wish this film was interpreted in a more complex and nuanced way. Rather than viewing Jennifer as empowered because she suddenly has the ability to ruthlessly murder men, what if we viewed her desire for flesh as fundamentally connected to the wound of her survivorship? What if we approached this film from an abolitionist lens and asked how Needy could stop the harm that Jennifer is perpetuating without Jennifer having to die at the end? I think the concept of this film held so much potential for insightful queer and feminist commentary, and I just wish it had been treated more carefully. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please take a second to like and subscribe to the podcast, and you can also leave a review if you're listening on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts. I am trying to build my listenership, and that can go a really long way. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter at whatevertvpod, but I am most active on Instagram, so follow me there if you want updates on upcoming episodes, my thoughts on random shows, and bisexual memes. Thank you for listening and continuing to support the podcast, even though COVID and all the crises it has produced have totally fucked up my production schedule. I'm hoping to be back with a new episode on autistic representation and love on the spectrum and everything's going to be okay in a couple of weeks. Until then, take care and don't let your friends get into vans with all-male indie bands.